1: Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and today we are taking your questions and attempting to provide competent answers for them. Joining me to do so is a man who never wants to see Man United play in the fog at Selhurst Park ever again, Taylor Rockwell.
2: I mean, it had a spooky vibe, so that was kind of fun. But yes, I, I don't really need to uh, see any sort of game like that ever again. No, thank you. I was
1: quite excited to put that game on uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, tay and I put it on and... I don't often turn off a game, but that one Mm -hmm. I did. Is that the equivalent of walking out of a movie, like turning off a game for you? Yeah. I've only walked out of one movie either. It was What Just Happened featuring uh, Robert De Niro. The title was very uh, revealing of my feelings towards (laughs) it. Uh, And uh, Yeah, this was similar. I I don't like to give up on things like that. But this was like, you know, as you get older, the years get shorter. I don't don't have time for, for this fog game. No, thank you. I I did the
2: slow swivel in my chair because I had it like on in the background while I was doing work at my desk and I was watching the game and then slowly around halftime turned back to just working on things and had it on and did not look at the screen again, really, because I didn't need to because nothing really happened in that second half. There we go.
1: Well, we'll all carry on with the rest of our lives and never mention that game again. And joining Taylor and I is a man who always comes up clutch like a Martin Braithwaite 95th minute goal. It's Joe (laughs) Lowry
3: hello ryan hello taylor i am honored to have that introduction yet again ryan favors me in his intros and i i will always appreciate it
1: <laughs> that's, that's true i've gone negative with taylor again he doesn't want to watch a game but it's more like come back win yeah. yeah yeah
2: and and to be fair ryan what i thought you were going to do was go with the we won't talk about that game again
1: and then introduce joe using that game again <laughs> so really i'm coming out on top here and i'm good with it my therapist is going to hear all about this and uh, my, my relationship with you two, I'm sure at some point. That's fair. <laughs> I look forward to meeting that person and then being like, oh, you're Taylor. That's never a good thing. You never want to hear that. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So I've got a, a sincere question, guys, but based on that Man United game, which I promise never to mention again, but I am doing it mm-hmm. within mere seconds. Um, <laughs> has this season actually been any good when you look at it on the whole, <laughs> Like, um... I'm, I'm, maybe I'm preferring specifically to the Premier League here. If you look at, say, like the start of the season, we yeah. had that Leeds four-three game, and else I think even Fulham Arsenal was quite good on this opening day. And then you see all these nil-nil's and this game like this. Like, is is this season actually good? Will we actually remember any quality soccer from this season, Taylor? My answer to that is
2: it will depend on how the rest of the season goes. While that's a very boring answer, I have a specific reason for it. It's because I think a lot of the enthusiasm will be how the maybe top four rounds out. Because right now we have Leicester in third, West Ham in fourth, Chelsea, Liverpool, Tottenham all on the outside looking in. If that stays that way, then I think it's a very interesting season from that narrative perspective. But to your point, Ryan, don't really have much of a title race. Manchester United in second place don't really seem like they're inclined to make it a title race, even if they could. So I think... With the nil-nil draws, it has been a bit of a lackluster season so far, unless you're a City fan or a West Ham fan or a Leicester fan, then I'm sure you're pretty pumped. Probably Everton as well. Mm. But for the most part, yeah, it's not been the sort of like, oh, this team's on top. Now this team's on top sort of somersaults uh, extravaganza that we might have hoped for.
1: Joe, do you have thoughts of one day regaling your grandchildren about the (laughs) 2020-21 campaign? uh not necessarily
3: but i do think i do think there are some awesome talking points from this season even if there's not a title race which there's not as you said taylor but i mean we do have teams in spots where i just didn't think they would be before the season started west ham in the top 4 if the season ended today they would be playing champions league football next season which is kind of kind of crazy right aston villa in in the top 10 arsenal underneath aston villa in the table and then you've got brighton who can't uh, who who couldn't hit the broad side of a barn right now and they're playing good soccer under Graham Potter so there are these little takeaways but yeah I mean obviously the season's going to look a lot worse if you just watch Manchester United versus Crystal Palace on repeat so I'm not recommending that course of action for anyone
1: uh, Joe you, you couldn't hit the broadside of a barn I, I come from your uh, analysis and I stay for your homespun uh, catchphrases <laughs> I love it I love it thank you <laughs> is it you couldn't hit the cow a cow's backside with the banjo is the famous one right which is, uh, uh it I will be after, it after I've heard the, it because uh, I've never
3: heard that before and I'm going to say it a lot.
1: Oh, I, I think it was Martin Tyler or someone like that said it way back in the day and it was on the FIFA 96 video game, I believe, in tribute to him. That's amazing.
3: I love that yeah. so Was that much. just like,
2: was that just like broadside of a barn? That's too general. We need <laughs> to make sure that people understand we're going for like a homespun colloquialism. Yeah. Banjo on a cow's backside. Perfect. All right. All
1: right. I mean, there's not People like what they like. The heart wants what it wants. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose there's a skiffle scene in the UK, but I don't think there's a lot of banjo players out there (laughs) hitting cows. So uh, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting. It's an epidemic over here. (laughs) Why don't we move on, gents, to some of the questions that our listeners have uh, very kindly furnished us with. Are we ready? Should we get into it?
3: Bring it on. Let's do it. Bring it
1: on. Question number one from Shreyas Ramani. Thank you very much for your question, Stress. I watch a lot of basketball in addition to soccer, says Shreyas, and I've been thinking recently about how one of the tenets of modern basketball may translate to soccer. In basketball, you need three to four players who are threatening three-point shooters on the floor so they can stand on the perimeter on offense and still draw defenders, opening up more space inside the three-point line to operate. Yes, I know all about what you're talking about here, Shreyas. In soccer, do you think teams need players who can take threatening shots, not just blasts, 30 rows into the stands from 18 to 25 yards out to draw out defensive players to close them down which could open up space behind Joe I'm going to get your thoughts on this one first I will I'll just I don't know a lot about basketball I'll admit here but the one thing I do notice about basketball which I see which I kind of equate to soccer is the uh parking the bus I feel like every basketball team as soon as they've shot and take a shot and they get it in the Hope. Um, they park the bus. They all sit back and they wait for the team to come back to them. Is that fair? Have I done? Have I done a correct analysis there, Joe?
3: No, you have. One of the one of the principles in basketball is after you score, you have to get back. Unless you're going to press or do something like that. Most often, especially in the NBA at high levels, you're gonna you're gonna track back to use that soccer terminology. Because if you don't, the other team's going to race up the ninety something feet and. And get a layup. I mean, it's not rocket science at that point. So yeah, Ryan, you're spot on. In basketball, defensively, you want to get back quickly in transition. There are a lot of, of overlapping points between soccer and basketball. And I love this question from Shreyas because now in modern basketball, especially, it's a lot about analytics. And a lot of what analytics tells us is that three point shots, yes, are worth more than two point shots, but the efficiency at which players can shoot them now, Uh, makes them more valuable to take even though you're going to be making them at a lower percentage than certain other shots on the floor. You want to be getting three-point shots and you want to be getting layups. That's pretty much the deal here. Not a lot of in-between in basketball right now. So the idea of having three or four guys who can stretch the floor, make the space bigger, and force the defensive team to have to cover more ground in their half, I really am mixing my metaphors here for soccer and basketball. (laughs) But that idea is the same. And so I think this is a really fun idea. From Shreyas, and I love the basketball tie-in, but I think my answer to his actual question about whether teams need players who can take shots from outside the box, whether they need long-shot specialists, I think my answer is no, but not because it's not a good idea, not because I don't think it's possible, but just because I don't think it's possible to have a long-shot specialist in open play in soccer. Yeah, you can have Messi step up and take a free kick and get it on target with a wall six times out of ten, maybe. But, man, can you get a player, even the greatest players in the world, in open play to be able to take a shot from 20 yards out, 25 yards out, and get it on target every single time and force the defense to react to that? I honestly don't think that's possible or else we would have seen it by
1: now. You're describing Tony Kroos, by the way.
3: (laughs) Close, but but I don't even think he would fall into this category. I don't think there's any player... (laughs) Ronaldo, Tony Kroos—the best players you can imagine. I know you're being tongue in cheek here, Ryan, but I think that's that's kind of where I take issue with this question. Taylor, where do you fall? Am I am I way off? Um, not no, I don't think so. I think going back
2: to the initial like basketball, soccer, parking the bus conversation, I think like Ryan, you're onto something there. And then there are the teams that that do play that high press system. When VCU made that run to the Final Four many years ago, it's because they were playing the havoc system, the high press system that was sort of innovative and new, and it caused lots of problems. It was awesome. And I think that does it. It, uh, it was. It was great to be here when it happened. Uh, but I think that does extend to soccer a little bit. Just that if you have a team who are sort of going that route, who are trying to press and get in your face, it makes you uncomfortable. And to some extent, I think pressing done well allows teams that don't have the technical talent to then, like, basically it allows them to handle a team somewhat like Bayern Munich, for example. I think if you're going to press them and at least try to make them uncomfortable, you can make things difficult for them. And that extends to this question, then, that I think you can have great shooters from 30 yards out, but if... If you sort of put them under pressure, if you do have somebody running at them, it's going to make them change the way they're shooting. It's going to make them change their run-up. And I think the big difference to me would be that in basketball, you can't make that contact. You can't slam into them as you go to make to block the shot. Whereas in soccer, you really can. and And I think that's also part of it for me, that you can't just have a person outside the box hovering there and they've got a little bit of a sort of like like a space around them that people can't get into. I think you're going to have the system set up like Burnley have where you can sort of block angles, eliminate like as clear shooting angles. And that's kind of all you have to do so that it does require a world-class strike uh, to beat you. And that world-class strike is going to have to happen consistently. So I, I don't think it works as well in soccer as it does in basketball.
1: I, um. I don't know about VCU getting to the final four, but I did enjoy the Vanderbilt cinematic universe and uh, I've been watching Vandivision (laughs) as well on Disney plus, which I very much enjoy. Um, So that's my contribution there. But one, one thing I I would note about basketball as well is the scoring. Um, Is it arguable guys that scoring is less important in basketball to a certain extent, because it happens so often and much, much more often than other sports, you know, the, the score is racked up very, very high in basketball. Is it, does that therefore make it more important to have these uh, shoot- shooters from long distance who can get the threes? And, um, you know, th- th- it, th- there's more moving parts required in a soccer game. Does that make sense at all, uh, Taylor? I mean... You're kind of asking the
2: wrong person here, because I think of the three of us, Joe knows the most about basketball. That said, I watched Shaq's expert analysis the other day, and I watched Candace Parker look stupefied by what he was trying to say. So I feel like if Shaq can do it, I can too. <laughs> uh, I think that it's probably like... Maybe this answers your question, Ryan, and this is my interpretation of things. Joe, I welcome you to say you are totally wrong, Taylor. But I feel like there used to be a way of playing where you had your shooters, you had your big guys in the paint, and you could kind of vary it, and it was about the the defensive side of the game and then like playing into your strengths on offense. And it seems like there's been a shift towards having a lot better shooters on the floor at any given moment, and and it opens things up a bit more... And there's just the idea that, yeah, if you've got a few accurate three point shooters, you're hitting threes every time the other score, other team is scoring twos, and maybe at an occasional three, it's gonna give you that advantage. I think that's probably the big difference there. If soccer gave you two goals, if you shot from 25 yards out, Which then maybe we have a bit more of a, like, an inclination or a desire to shoot from distance. Yeah,
3: and that's a, that's a great point, Taylor, because There's no benefit in soccer from shooting further away. Yeah, there's benefit in terms of retweets and in terms of it going viral, but Mm -hmm. there's no tangible score benefit to shooting from further away. If there was, I think we might be having a different conversation about the validity of what Treyas is talking about, about taking long shots and and kind of creating players or bringing in players who have that specific skill set. But because a tap-in from one yard out is worth the exact same amount of points, as a shot from 30 yards out, that's well outside the box. I mean, there's just not a reason necessarily to focus on long shots which are going to be far less efficient to score a goal. They're going to be far less likely to score than a shot from inside the box or especially from, you know, close inside the box. There's no point really in trying to focus more on that. I will say there are a couple of benefits I could think of to shooting to shooting long besides the mm-hmm. the fact that it's awesome when it when it actually works. <laughs> If you take a long shot and you get it on target, because the ball is probably coming so fast at the goalkeeper, they're going to have to parry it away realistically, which means it could end up out of bounds as a corner kick going past that end line. And I think corner kicks are are far more likely to result in a goal or at least a quality goal scoring opportunity than actually most open play attacks, whether you're shooting from inside the box or outside the box or, or whether or not you're attacking in those areas because there's no guarantees that your attack will end up in a shot at all. So a corner kick could result from a long shot, or you could theoretically draw the defense forward and slip a little through ball in behind, which is exactly what Shreyas is talking about. So I want to clarify, mm-hmm. it is possible, and I do think it is possible. Mm-hmm. But then the problem is you do that two or three times and it's it's in the film room. The the team that you're playing yeah. next week knows what to look for. And then at that point, they're going to say, okay, guys, let's pack it in and not worry about closing down that long shot because it's not going to hurt us nearly as much as that through ball in behind is going to hurt us. So yeah, soccer is different different than basketball because the, the point... You don't get extra points for shooting from further away. And I, I just think it's, it's difficult slash impossible to do this on a regular basis.
2: Yeah, I think there's also like a a key thing there, Joe, that you hit upon, but is like worth saying, even if it makes me sound like Captain Obvious, is that when you do, uh, get that three off, provided it hasn't been blocked, nobody else can touch it. Like it's gotta, it's gotta at least like hit the, hit the rim, right? Before you can go for the rebound. Whereas in soccer, you literally have a goaltender. Whereas in (laughs) basketball, goaltending is an offense and you like are automatically awarded the points. So I think like that also limits the, The effectiveness of that long, long distance shooting, Joe, to your point about there being like times when it works, I think if the defense isn't set or more specifically, the goalkeeper isn't set and you can catch them out, that's the time to do it. And that's a thing that has long been the criticism of David De Gea, that he is not as good at getting his feet set when that long distance shot is taken quickly. And it's why he's sort of vulnerable to that type of shooting opportunity. It's why United, I think, do try to limit that to the extent they can. So I think there are times when you could play into that idea, but I think it's very much case by case as opposed to a broadly applicable strategy.
1: Agreed. Good stuff. I think we nailed that question, gents. Thank you, Shreyas, for the question. Let's move on to one from Jackie Choi, who asks about referees. Referees run almost as much as players do. Uh, certainly more than some players, I could say. What happens if, when, they get injured? Are there substitutes for the ref, or would an assistant referee take their place? I've got some thoughts on this. Uh Joe, why don't you take a run first?
3: So there can be ref substitutes. There can be a substitute for the ref. Uh You can be replaced, if you're that head ref, by the fourth official. You can be replaced by an actual substitute official it's not it's not one of the four that you would see at a high level but there can be extra referees appointed and just ready and waiting ready to come into the game depending on the competition so yeah at a very basic level there there definitely can be ref substitutes Taylor. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think yeah, Joe has said it there. I have been there for games in which the AR or the uh, the center official pulled a hammy or had some sort of injury or even just sort of had enough of a cramping issue they couldn't continue. And that meant the fourth official came on. Uh, I think that can sometimes be a pretty big jump and a pretty sizable one to have to deal with maybe mentally. But that is part of the reason why you have those fourth officials for the professional game
1: it is indeed yeah and one of the things I always used to love when I used to go watch my team Wimbledon play is um, the referees and the uh, assistants warming up before the mm-hmm. game so they, they don't have they don't have half the field to warm up like like the players do they're like using just like the thin strip of the centre circle yep. or they're just yep. on the touchline somewhere <laughs> and like they go, and some, some referees warm up much harder than others I remember Dermot mm-hmm. Gallagher who was um, a Premier League referee who was I think he was a head teacher by profession when this is when referees were part time still in the Premier League and he He used to really, really go... All, all all, in for his warm up so I did, did used to enjoy that um, I have found some examples of uh, instances where the referee has gotten injured I think the most recent one which you guys might remember was 2017 when Bobby Madley he subbed himself off I think it was half time between a game between Stoke and Leicester he he got a thigh injury uh, this is a game that took place at Stoke so he switched places with John Moss who was the fourth official for that game and there was a delay because they had Madley had to hand over his cards and his notepads and I assume uh, I I assume he had to explain his terrible handwriting to Moss uh, while, uh, while they were doing that interchange. There was another one I found online from 2015, uh, a women's game between Arsenal ladies and Reading, which I think uh, I think that would have been at Boreham Wood, Arsenal's uh, uh, women's gr- ground at the time. A uh, referee got out injured. They put a, put out a loudspeaker message on the Tano, on the PA system. <laughs> if there's a qualified assistant referee in the stadium, please can they make themselves known? uh and just by sheer coincidence premier league referee michael oliver was watching the game and he came on and he did the second half oh that's so so great that was quite fun that was a continental cup game It was uh between arsenal and reading in 2015 one more quite very famous one i'd certainly say in english culture was in 1972 there was a linesman an assistant referee called dennis dewitt who pulled a muscle he had to go off early once again uh, they they did a message. This was um oh, I can't remember who the game was uh, between, but excuse me. It might I think it involved Coventry for reasons you'll see shortly. Um, I was about to guess Coventry
2: totally randomly. <laughs> wow, all
1: right. <laughs> well, the, the reasons will come wow. clear very shortly. They did the Tanoi message again. Is if there's a qualified referee, please could they make themselves known? uh The person who came up. Uh, put on a tracksuit, stepped up and um, went and bit, was the linesman for the day, was Jimmy Hill, who uh, is one of these sort of English characters who's done everything in the game. He was manager of Coventry. He wrote Coventry's song, like they have a song called the Sky Blue Song. He wrote that. He's wrote that. Uh, he been like director of football. He's, he was a, for many, many, many years. He was on Match of the Day as a pundit, as an analyst. Uh, he was also the person who introduced the rule of three points for a win. It was two points before he did that. It was 1981. He's an absolute visionary, was Jimmy Hill. And he actually came on and was an assistant referee for a game when called to do so, which is a lovely little story.
2: Jimmy Hill, the Coventry Donald Glover?
1: Something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> this is Coventry, how the song went. <laughs> I, I will forever
2: uh, associate Coventry, I've said this before, with the the Guardian joke, uh, Coventry, the city that puts the phrase, the words concrete and nightmare into the phrase concrete nightmare. <laughs> uh, but I'm glad you bring up some of those examples because, as I understand it, they will always, especially in professional games, always try to find a third official. They never want to go to the system of one referee has one half of the field and the other referee has the other uh, that you'll get in the amateur game sometimes if a ref doesn't show up. Can't really do that at the professional level, so they will do everything they can to have that that full trio. I when we when we did the commentary for the kickers games and we would be there for all of the warm ups. Ryan, I always paid attention to the officials warming up mostly, and I know this sounds like a hacky joke, but I I, I mean it. I would wonder if they would practice handing out cards and some of the <laughs> gestures that you would get, you know, just to get a little bit lumbered limbered up. But it, it led me to realize that there's a 100 chance a 100 chance that. Every Every official you see, be they on t- television or in person at games, has practiced how to give a card in the mirror. I have to believe that that's a thing of, like, they want their own style. There's the uh, the South American official who, who we've seen the videos of who does it very, like, flashily. Uh, and I think that you've got to believe that they all practice their, their hand gestures and their their way of downplaying players when they give them attitude. But you don't get to see that in the warm-ups, sadly.
1: Yeah, you don't want to pull a tricep when you're doing a booking, do you? Exactly. <laughs> you guys can't see it right now,
3: but I'm actually practicing practicing my red card gesture as, as we speak so the video is turned yeah, off because you but want it to be do, do you go solemn joe do you go energetic do you it go depends. like haha here's your red no, card. no it totally depends on the situation on on how much okay. that player is bothering me personally not not like the foul he committed mm-hmm. just how annoyed i am with him or her um, mm-hmm. so that's going to depend on my facial expressions and on you know kind of how passionately i pull that card out and, and kind of point it up in the air
2: I'm glad you 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 draw that distinction uh, because I do love like we saw it in the Sheffield game when they when there's the sort of VAR red card. The official gives the red, but it's that sort of like almost sheepish like I caught it on VAR. it. I know it's harsh, but here's your red. But you're right. I love the ones that are almost. It may be one of my top five favorite things in soccer is the like spite red yeah. of like, oh, you are getting a red card, and I'm going to enjoy giving it to you. Have fun, <laughs> like that sort of like so you can almost see him being like, bye bye as the as the red card comes out. That it was, makes um... you very very happy.
1: That was the exact style of red card that Stephen Gerrard got this midweek. I don't know if you saw it. He got a red card for descent. He mm-hmm. got a yellow, then a red for some very fruity language aimed at the referee. Uh, and uh, the, it, the red, when he pulled it out the referee, it was like uh, someone giving you the middle finger in traffic, like very slowly <laughs> raised, but like, yeah, you're getting this now. It was, uh, it was quite an enjoyable moment. Oh,
2: that's so uh, good. The uh, emotional also, red.
1: One more interesting thing about referees getting injured. Lee Mason, uh, you may remember, had a bit of a nightmare situation in the Brighton-West Brom game, last weekend where he sort of blew the whistle and, uh, you know, uh, had to go to VAR oh, yeah, to see yeah, if he yeah. blown his own whistle, had a bit of a disaster with the goal. Uh, he was supposed to be refereeing against Sheffield United, Liverpool this coming Sunday. He's pulled out with an injury to yeah. his ego, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, Yeah. <laughs> we it's totally a
2: very fortunately timed injury for sure.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right. Thank you, Jackie Choi, for that question. We're going to be back with many more after these messages.
4: We are back. Let's fly
1: straight in with a question from Tim Flynn. Thank you for the question, Tim. Tim asks, where is Sebastian Soto? Or perhaps more appropriately, why isn't he even showing up on Norwich City game day rosters? He seemed to be doing quite well at Telstar. Why why, why recall him if they aren't even going to put him on the roster, asks Tim. Silver lining, hopefully they let him go for Olympic qualifying. How can they justify holding him out when they're not even close to using him? Tay-Tay.
2: Hmm. Uh, I'll take the last part first. He has been included in the 31-player provisional roster, so uh, that will be happening. We we uh, assume. Uh, in terms of where he has been, he has been with their U23 team uh, fairly consistently. He had three straight starts for them between early February, mid February. Then he missed two games. I saw a quick quote that said he had some muscle problems that were keeping him out. May also have been with an eye towards that a little bit qualifying, but he has been with their U23s, and so the. Final part, uh Joe, if you don't mind me continuing, no, is that OK or do you want to answer that? No, you're okay. good. Take it away. Um, I think basically the idea is that he was with Telstar because he wasn't going to get a work permit for the UK when they, uh, I guess, modify their rules a little bit because of Brexit. And he gets the caps with the US that he gets at the end of the year, uh, which Joe and I have talked about before that I don't remember. Uh That allows him to then get the work permit. So then I think it's Norwich bringing him back because – there's a chance he'll be with the senior team sooner rather than later, but I think they want to see how he does with the physicality, with their style of play, and they can kind of get more direct eyes on him than they would in the Dutch second division. So I think while it's kind of a bummer that he's not playing like regular professional football, at the same time that he's been brought back to me, says Norwich want to evaluate him that much more closely.
1: He's been <laughs> <laughs> yes, Not really yes. Yes,
3: he, he has indeed. <laughs> I think it's a good thing, right? I think it's a good thing that... I, I'll wait. I'll wait.
1: Yeah, okay, we're, no, good. No, good, we're good. good.
3: I think it's a good thing that Norwich City brings him back in because the situation at Telstar, if things were going according to plan, was always going to be temporary. Taylor, you, you kind of explained it well with that work permit situation. He didn't qualify for the work permit before... He he was moving from Germany to the UK, and he didn't qualify for that UK work permit then, so you go to the Netherlands, you get a couple of national team caps, thank you Greg Berhalter, and now you're good to make that move, and since then, yeah, Norwich uh, has, or Soto's played a couple of games for their U23s in the Premier League 2 Division 2, He's he's working his way back to fitness, but right now, Taylor, as you touched on, he's in Mexico. I assume he's in Mexico. I haven't seen an actual picture of him in Mexico. But I'm confused by this as well. That's why I kinda of pulled out of that statement before is like I
2: talked to Brian Sherreta. He said, Oh yeah, he's with the US. But I and I've seen the roster announced. I've seen like some players are reporting. I don't know if he's there. I'm not entirely sure who is there and who isn't.
3: Yeah, and it, i guess we're splitting hairs here. Either way, he's involved yeah. in that pre-Olympic qualifying training camp roster for Jason Christ, and he's expected to be training down in Guadalajara. As Jason Christ and the rest of his staff figures out how to trim that roster from 28 players down to 30. It was 31, the three Atlanta United guys, Brooks Lennon, Miles Robinson, and George Bellow were yeah, so. there. So it's going to be 28 down to 20. And I think odds are pretty good that Sebastian Soto is going to be a part of that final 20-man roster. And maybe not the de facto starting number nine for that group. But if you're Norwich City, you want him to feature you want him to go and play in Olympic qualifying there's no reason for them to hold him back I don't think they would ever want to do that because he can only raise his valuation by getting minutes at an international level yes a youth U23 international level but still certainly more eyes on that tournament for the United States roster and for Mexico's roster at least more eyes there than there you know than there are on Norwich City's U23s in the Premier League 2 Division 2 so it's a it's a good spot for Soto right now.
2: It is. It is, especially because that means he hasn't annoyed, uh, Jason Kreiss. Uh, we're sticking with the Olympic roster for a second. Yeah. Uh, Joe, with those three Atlanta United players who he thought would be there, but then were not allowed to leave. Kreiss was sort of like, I understand it. Like, as a former MLS coach, I understand you got to do what you got to do. But then I think did have a few just little, like, moments of annoyance, boy, like, bubble up. He was asked then, like, would this, uh, impact his decision making if they do qualify for the Olympics? He said, like, it I might have to. Like, I, th- I think you can see him being frustrated there. I also Enjoyed him being a little bit prickly about that number nine position you mentioned. It does seem like it will be Sebastian Soto. Uh, he was asked about why there was no uh, Jeremy Obobasi on the roster. He said it's uh, that. Uh, Jeremy fits in as a number 9, uh, and we have two players we prefer. That would be Ricardo Pepe and Sebastian Soto. So I think it's safe to assume we will see Sebastian Soto playing for the U.S. in Olympic qualifiers. Uh, we won't see Efren Alvarez, who was called in but is evidently still on the fence and would have had to file a one-time switch. But I think we still got a, a decently strong roster, mostly MLS players. I think part of that is pandemic-related, part of that is travel restrictions. Uh, but I think overall, I, I feel somewhat confident. I would like Miles Robinson to be there, though, I have to admit.
3: I'm kind of confused about the forward situation, about that striker situation, Mm -hmm. because Christ said when talking about Obobese, you know, he's not on this this 31-player-slash-28-player roster because of a coach's decision. So, you know, he made that call, and he said, just like you said, there are two number nines that we like more, but there are three number nines on this roster right now. There's Ricardo Pepe, yes, there's Sebastian Soto, yes, but Jesus Ferreira is also on this roster, and so I don't know if I'm missing something, if I am just way off base here, but I've been confused ever since that quote came out because it, there are three guys yeah. and I I just am totally baffled. And so I'm guessing all three are going to be on the roster because Ferreira can play out wide if needed. I don't think he's great at that spot, but he could. But I mean, Ferreira is a guy with the senior team right now who's in contention to be a regular featured player for 2021 in different competitions for the U.S. under Greg Berhalter. So maybe Ferreira's is going to go with the senior. I have so many questions.
2: I, I do, too. I think if you want to, like, read between the lines and, I don't know, do... Like, I, I'm definitely, like, saying opinion here, like, and and conjecture is, I guess, the word I should look for. But maybe that means, yeah, it's forever playing out wide and it's just going to be Pepe and Soto. Or the other possibility is, like, Christ was maybe speaking too quickly and what he meant was we have options at the, like... Number 9 target hold-up uh, position, yeah, and be. that's Pepe and Soto. But then if we go false 9, maybe that's Ferreira. But either way, I guess he just felt like he wasn't going to be one of those, like a starter in either of those roles, so he went with the uh, the players he did.
3: Yeah, and I, I feel bad for leaving Ryan in the corner for this question. So, Ryan, we appreciate you. <laughs> we know you're still there. Um, <laughs> hang in there, buddy. I do think... As kind of closing <laughs> dots for me. Or Taylor, we can talk about this for as long as you want. But
2: uh, I think we should just keep going and see how long Ryan will wait before he hangs up. I don't really want to do that. <laughs> Sorry, I just Ryan.
1: got back from making a cup of tea. What were you guys talking about? Oh, nice. Perfect. <laughs> on brand. I guess my kind of big picture
3: macro overarching takeaway from this roster mm-hmm. is this is a good group of players. Goalkeeper yep. is really the weakest spot on this roster. I think David Ochoa, if he's ever able to get healthy, is still a very talented young goalkeeper um, in that RSL system. And, you know, there's a solid group of defenders, even without Miles Robinson. Julian uh, you know, Aaron Herrera featured in that game against Trinidad and Tobago. I really like Mauricio Pineda. I like Sam Vines a lot, Taylor. I know you're with me on that one. In midfield, (laughs) you've got a lot of talent that won't all be on this roster. You've got Frankie Amaya in his trade demand situation in Major League Soccer. Cole Bassett, I mean, Andres Perea, who they just got to file that switch from Columbia to the men's national team in the United States. You've got other guys on this list. I'm not naming everybody. You have players that are even in contention with the senior group right now as well. And You're then You're legally some of the fo- obligated to
2: mention Ulianes, by the way. Yeah,
3: Ulianes is not playing for here in vain. He's in California, or he has been in California for the last several weeks as far as i can tell he's not been playing while he's on loan so he's he's technically a wolfsburg player but he was loaned to Heronbane in the netherlands and now he's back in california just kind of doing his own thing from what i can tell so this could be a good chance for him to get some eyes on him similar to sebastian soto Uh, slightly different but you get the idea so this is a very strong group of players that should qualify for the olympics and i'm excited to get to watch them in march which is where we are right now
2: and are there any players on this roster that England can steal from us after we rightfully stole them from England?
3: <laughs> that got Ryan out of his out of his shell a little bit. I, not that I'm aware of. I think we're All we're right. pretty safe on the dual national front in this group. All right, that makes me happy. <laughs>
1: Uh, I guess I have a question about Soto then. Um, You know, signed signed a contract with, with Norwich last year. Norwich looking very likely to be in the Premier League next season. What do we think it takes to get Soto some meaningful action? Should they be in the Premier League next season? And does an Olympic qualifying or Olympic run help him in any way?
2: From the coverage I read of those Norwich U23 games, it sounds like his like technical polish is good either i don't know if that comes from his time with Telstar or if it's pre-existing uh but there were there were different points made about him bringing balls down like with one touch and killing them dead when run like when running at speed still being able to control passes and i think he was he was very good and effective at holding the ball up keeping keeping possession of the ball and then finding uh opportunities for attacks i don't think he has been scoring he definitely hasn't scored i don't know how involved he's been in the few goals the north u23s have scored and i think that's a big part of what will determine his involvement next season. So, too, will preseason. But if he can get a few goals between now and the end of the campaign that puts him into maybe Daniel Farka's view a little bit or brings him into preseason training and just sees how he does with that senior team, I think he'll probably get some training sessions with the senior squad as we come to an end this year. Uh, but I think, yeah, scoring a few goals for the U23s and showing that he can do
3: everything as opposed to a few things really well will be fundamental. I think just to add my two cents here, performing well in Olympic qualifying would be great for Sebastian Soto. And then just continuing to do his thing in Norwich, whatever level that is for the rest of this season, and then getting a full opportunity in preseason next year with potentially a Premier League team in Norwich City if they are promoted, getting a chance to have that many opportunities to show himself in front of the coaching staff That I think is really important because I think Sebastian Soto is a really good player, but he's just been in a pretty unstable environment for the last year or two. And so this could be a chance headed into next season, but still in 2021, this, you know, these next few months leading up to August or September, this could be a really important stretch of of time for Sebastian Soto.
2: Joe, one final question on that front. Uh, sorry, Ryan, again. Uh, Soto turns 21 in late July. Uh, would you be OK with him? Let's say he finishes out this season. He gets a couple goals for the U23. He trains with the senior team. He has a preseason. And then Norwich decide to send him on loan to a championship club, uh, provided he has the work permit cleared and has enough caps for the national team. Are you okay with that? If he's if he's getting regular minutes for a championship team, uh, if Norwich were to get promoted or would you rather see him stay with the senior team with Norwich, be in the Premier League, but maybe only play like 10 minutes every third game?
3: Yeah, that's such a hard question. I think it would be slightly discouraging, not not the end of the world to, again, preach Mm -hmm. patience, but I think it would be slightly discouraging to see him loaned out again just because I think he needs that stability. But at the same time, as a young player, you need to be getting reps. And if he's not yeah. getting reps, I think that is a problem. So it's kind of a lose-lose. But I mean, there are good things that would come out of that championship loan. So I would probably prioritize minutes at a solid level over sporadic minutes in the Premier League. But I mean, if, if he can, if he can do both, that would be great. Yeah.
2: Well, so I said in the very beginning that like Norwich brought him back, I think, because they wanted to be able to keep more regular tabs on him. Obviously, they have European scouts. Ryan, you know English geography certainly better than I. Mm. Uh, is there a championship club around Norwich that he could go to? And then, like, they can still just have somebody pop over to see his games and then get back in time for their games?
1: Ipswich will be their closest rivals. They're very close. Tractor boy. So they just had a takeover, too. Let's make it happen. <laughs> and, uh, if, if anything, Sebastian Soto is getting to live in Norfolk, East Anglia, Norwich area, which is a very beautiful area of the world. So at least he's got that going for him at the moment. A lot of people tend to marry their cousins and siblings in norwich but uh it's it's really nice to look at so um he's got that isn't that also
2: the policy of the royal family as well
1: (laughs) yeah that's where they get it from or it used to be less so less so these days well sandringham the queen's estate is in is in norfolk as well so make of that what you will uh wow sandringham sandringham yes where she goes to pretend to shoot pheasants and walk her corgis and such
2: Sandringhamshire. Like, I feel like it's gotta be even more posh. I don't know if you could make it more posh. That's pretty good.
1: (laughs) Well, there we go. Um, next question, gents, is this one comes from Ryan Bailey. It's a two-part question. Um, the first question is, do you like apples? The second part is, uh, Eunice Muster has declared for England. How do you like them apples? (laughs) That hasn't happened, right? If like, if
3: I, like, just to be clear, we're, we're still okay. Like, we're still on the hunt. We are still in the hunt. Okay, I, I think
2: I've, I have, uh, read a lot about this. As I said, I talked to Brian Sharetta a little bit and I, and what really helped me, obviously it's like an, uh, a non-professional footballer conversation, but I talked to a friend of mine who, I guess if he were called up would be eligible for Greece, England, and the United States. Uh, he lives in the U.S. He's married to an American. And I asked him, like, if caught up, what would be the ranking? And he said it would be tough between England or Greece. And then if neither of them wanted him, he would happily play for the U.S. I asked him how much of that would be about the quality of the of the team. And his answer was, "It wouldn't really. It would be mostly about, like, kind of what I identify with, what I have kind of envisioned growing up. And I envision myself playing for that Greece team that won the Euros. I thought, think about playing for England, and I think that's probably where Yunus Musa is. It's worth remembering that he was born in the U.S. while his family was on vacation, grew up in Italy, then in England, and uh, what came through the Arsenal academy there. And so, hang, hang
1: on a second, Taylor. He was yeah. born while his family were on vacation."
2: That is correct. What? That is his connection to the United States. He was born uh, while well, they were on vacation in New York, I think. How long uh, was his vacation? Is, that... Just <laughs> uh, a long so enough. Here's, here is my guess. This is a complete <laughs> and total guess because when I first heard that, I was like, that feels odd. I think that if you want to apply for a visa and if you're... Like, not from England, let's say. Like, I think it is a longer process. You don't know when you're going to get approved. And sometimes it is just like, yep, yeah, you're approved. you got to come now. Or, like, you, you have a window to go. And my guess would be that their window opened up when uh his mom was very pregnant. And they chose to take that opportunity because when would they get it again? Over they came, a baby they had. And then they moved, I think, pretty much immediately to Italy. So that's his connection to the United States. And I think it's a credit to Greg Berhalter that he... Like, facilitated that conversation and that communication and was able to get Musa to come into camp. Uh, but I think Brian Charetta, he wrote an article about this. He, he made me feel better as well. Not just in terms of there's still a chance he plays for the US, which there is, but also just that it's a young kid who wants to keep his options open. He played for England at, four different youth levels I think sure so he has that connection and I think it seems like that's maybe the the national team that he most pictured himself playing for and I can't really really begrudge him for that because we've talked about dual nationals before and it like far be it from me to say anybody should do anything that they don't want to do uh, and then the last thing in my mind is that he already has two caps for the USA two more means he is officially bound to the US and if he played in some friendlies this March, that might mean if he played in two, he's then cap tied to the U.S. So I think that's the other reason that he wants to keep everything open. If England then try to officially cap him, then I'll be very, very mad. But for now, I hope he plays to the U.S., but I understand why he would choose England instead. Yeah... Sorry, Joe. It. I went off on a ramble there, Joe. I, I feel like I covered a lot of bases. Whereas you and I have talked about Yunus Musa so much on this show that I know you probably have your own thoughts and your own feelings on that one. I would be sad not to get to cover him or not to cover him as much in the Americans Abroad roundup every week.
3: Yeah, I'd be sad too. No more Musa maneuvers if that if that were to happen. Right, but it's it, it'll be okay. You know, the U.S. is in mm-hmm. a spot right now where they have depth and. And that makes these conversations even easier in some way. I'm not saying that Yunus Musa wouldn't be a great player for the U.S. men's national team. He would. But, yeah, obviously it's it's our job to respect whatever decision he makes, and it doesn't really mm-hmm. go any deeper than that, honestly.
1: I think the biggest issue, Taylor, is the Eunice tattoo you have covering your entire back. You might have to get that changed. I mean, I regret
2: it. <laughs> yeah. I regret it. Uh, it's gonna. I'm going to have to kind of, I don't know if I'll just keep it and like have them try to cover it up so it looks like he's wearing an England jersey. Yeah. But I don't really have that much affinity for the English national team. So, I don't know. We'll figure something out. Maybe he signs for Man United one day and we'll just put him into that jersey. That'll be fine. <laughs> but, yeah, I do regret it now. It was several sessions and it's my entire back. It's an odd one. It's, it's actually, it's my entire, like, backside of my body. Like, his face is on the back of my head, and then his legs are on, like, the back of my legs. It was, it was a choice I made. Oh my
1: gosh. It looks like he's walking backwards down the street when you, uh, when you go out naked for your runs. <laughs> Ex- exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and
1: on that note, why don't we take a quick break? We'll be back with more questions very shortly.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone?
4: We are back. Some more
1: questions for you guys. This one's from Patrick Delaney. Patrick, thank you so much for the questions. What are some teams that were judged too quickly and have largely defied early season talking points, either in a good way or a bad way? I will open up the discussion with the one that immediately Hmm. leapt to my mind, and it's a club that Joe mentioned earlier in this pod, West Ham, who, as Joe mentioned, currently sitting in the Champions League spaces. If you hark back to the start of the season, we had the West Ham fans Basically an open revolt, which they've been in for, let's face it, quite a few years uh, since moving to the uh, Olympic Stadium, the Hammer Bowl, if you will. Um, we had a, a team that hadn't really made any signings. They uh, they got Sutchek and Kufal. I think Sutchek just uh, confirming his or, or making his loan permanent. Hala sold off to Halair sold off to Ajax. It was a pretty bad situation. And David Moyes at the helm, who wasn't, uh, shall we say, the most fashionable appointment uh, that that West Ham made. Oh, no? No, apparently not. Does he have a reputation? I mean, it's very different these days because he's obviously the the Don these days. But uh, um, that would be the team for me who have absolutely defied expectation from this early season. Uh, Joe, anyone else to add to that list?
3: I have a few different options here and it's hard because i have the memory of a goldfish as i said on tuesday's show and so even for some reason we we all do
2: these days joe like like
3: trying to go back to the beginning of the season and remember what on earth was happening besides a few big things is really difficult for me so i did some research and i did some some deep remembering in a meditative state and so i've got we got a, a couple here this one's a little bit harsh but real sociedad were top of la liga after 10 games and i'm taking i guess the negative side of patrick's question here they were on top of la liga and now they're fifth. So not a huge drop, but the conversations around the team at that time, from what I heard, were, were so, so much fun. It's this young team with so many academy players on their first team squad, more than any other team in La Liga. Their coach had them playing this, this really enjoyable style. And this is still largely true now under Al Guasil. Like, this is all still the case. He's a former youth academy coach for Sociedad. He rose through the ranks. They have David Silva. They have Orazabal. They have Alexander Isak. I mean, they have, a lot of talented players and they're still having a great season. But that little dip from, from leading the league over the likes of FC Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Sevilla, all of these, these much bigger teams historically. Uh, I think that, that dip is at least noteworthy and it just reminded me of how much fun those conversations were. And maybe Sociedad will, will be back in that conversation again over the next couple of seasons. Tai Tai? Uh,
2: yeah. So did you all both go, uh, current season? I did, yes. All right. So I went historical for mine, uh, oh. which is dangerous because it leads you to a rabbit hole of like, I remember the Luis Felipe Scolari Chelsea team starting. And I remember pundits talking about how it's like, oh, it's like watching Brazil play because he had been Brazil, then Portugal, then Chelsea. And it was all this enthusiasm. And then I remember him getting sacked midseason. I spent way too much time reading about Chelsea because he was sacked with them in third, which feels very dramatic, <laughs> given the way things have gone for Chelsea and a lot of Premier League teams uh, like this season, especially. So the two that I would point to, I'll go with one negative and one positive. The one that ended pretty poorly would be the Real Madrid 2003-2004 season. That's the one in which they bring in David Beckham. He joins uh, the original Ronaldo. He joins Zidane, Figo, Casillas, Roberto Carlos, Raul, Guti, Esteban Cambiaso. That's a solid Madrid team. Uh, at the beginning of March, they are 12 points clear of second place Deportivo. Uh, they're in the Copa del Rey final, and they had just won their first leg of the Champions League quarterfinal against Monaco 4-2 at home. They then lose the second leg 3-1, to one, which means they're knocked out. That's on April 6th. And after that, things take a turn. They lose their next game to Osasuna. They win the one after that. Then they lose six straight, four of those final eight games being at home. They lose the Copa del Rey final. Uh, so they're knocked out of the Champions League. They lose Copa del Rey. They finish fourth in the league. Carlos Quiroz, who had taken over in the summer, is fired 10 months uh, into his tenure at Real Madrid. And so we go from this club that in the beginning had this... Lest we forget, up-and-coming, exciting manager who'd had lots of success under Alex Ferguson. Here's his chance to sort of stake his claim, show he can be that, that senior manager. He's got this talent around him. This Madrid, these Galacticos are going to win everything. And at one point in March, they're on for the treble, and they finish with nothing and fourth place. So I think that would be the sort of this very positively covered team that ends on a negative. And then let's talk 2015-2016. I knew you were going to say this one. Yep, the Guardian predicted that Leicester City would finish 19th. Uh, I that season continuously kept being like, yeah, but they're going to fall out of the top four eventually and they never did. They end up winning the title, obviously. Here's just a, a quick quote from uh, Paul Doyle's preview. I should know Paul Doyle much more positive about Leicester than that 19th prediction would suggest uh, but here is him writing about the departed Esteban Cambiaso. Statistics do not convey the full extent of the Argentinians' impact, even 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 if they show he made more passes than any other Leicester player last term, it was where and when he played those passes that mattered, his astuteness and dynamism, keeping the team going in the right direction, just as his positioning, tackling and cajoling did. He ensured Leicester retained an intelligent balance even when they attacked with near abandon. Ranieri has yet to sign a replacement. Finding one will be tough. Who did they sign two weeks later? Ingolo Kante. And the rest is history. So I think that's a team that everybody thought, like, oh, what's he going to do with Jamie Vardy? Claudio Ranieri has come in. And I, we don't know. He's a tinker. Is this team going to respond? Uh, we don't know about Danny Drinkwater. Who's this Riyad Mahrez guy? And in the end, uh, we know all of those names. Maybe less so Danny Drinkwater, but certainly Vardy Mahrez and Ingolo uh, Kante ring out even today. Yeah.
1: Should have drunk a little more water, should Danny Um, we've got a few more questions to get through gents why don't we go to the next one here from Andrew Langin, who says do we talk about Pellegrino Matarazzo enough he got Stuttgart promoted and has comfortably put them in mid-table this year he seems to fly a little under the radar and I would suggest that's because um, Stuttgart aren't necessarily one of the prominent teams certainly we're guilty on Total Soccer Show of not necessarily Mm -hmm. cutting them week in week out Um, but it is an interesting question there Pellegrino Matarazzo of course uh, is from Wayne New Jersey Jersey, who I just found out this morning are uh, where the band Fountains of Wayne got their name from from a fountain store in Wayne, New Jersey Isn't that fun? A fountain store? Yeah, you know the fountain store in Wayne, New Jersey Don't you know it? <laughs> Oh,
2: I mean, oh, in the the fountain
1: district. Yeah, yeah of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. My, my, yeah mistake, you, my mistake. My yeah. mistake. Yeah, in and that's all. The uh, the lady gets in the fountain with you. Um, <laughs> so we went deep there on the Simpsons uh, quote. Uh, but also from Wayne, New Jersey, Greg Olson, the Panthers tight end, uh,
2: and Queen Latifah. I missed you from there too. It's the first time. I love you, Ryan,
1: so much. All right. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Hank Scorpio is the best Simpsons character not not named Simpson. That's just a fact. It's just a that fact, is True. <laughs> anyway, we're going off we're going off piece a little bit. Matarazzo, does he get uh, the credit he deserves, Taylor? Uh,
2: definitely not for me. I, I think that that is a great question from Andrew. Uh, like As an example, his team were sort of responsible, like the final nail in the coffin for the Schalke purge this past weekend. I did not mention that when I talked to Manuel Vath yesterday. We didn't even talk about Stuttgart. And what I learned in researching this, three different opposition managers have been dis- dismissed the day after losing to Stuttgart. Uh, mm. Achim Birlotzer Biel- at Mainz, uh, Lucien Favre at Borussia Dortmund, and now Christian Gross at Schalke. I mean, Pellegrino Matarazzo is ending careers, uh, so much so that he himself has not. He signed uh, a contract extension. His club are currently 10th. I can talk a lot more about uh, Matarazzo and Stuttgart, but I think it's a great question because he is doing an amazing job with a Stuttgart team that are very unheralded to Ryan's point. And we inevitably end up talking more about Jesse Marsh. I think because the Salzburg to the Bundesliga pipeline has been established, we sort of know that's a thing that can happen at any given moment. I don't think Pellegrino Matarazzo will leave Stuttgart
3: anytime soon. Uh, and I think that's probably good because he's got them playing really well. Yeah, I went through and looked at the numbers on Stuttgart so I could have a better idea of how this team plays and this season, they play mostly out of a three at the back shape, either a 3-4-3, three, three, which is what they've been using recently, or a 3-5-2, which is what they used earlier on in the year. They'll keep mm. the ball a decent amount. They play the second fewest long balls in the league, so they're not this you know super direct Werder Bremen-Schalke. Those are my two go-tos for bad soccer in the Bundesliga. Sorry, everybody. Yep. But they're not in that mold. They actually play with the ball at times. They have the third most goals and the third most expected goals in the Bundesliga, behind only Bayern munich and Borussia Dortmund. I'm going to say that one more time. They have the third most goals and expected mm-hmm. goals in the Bundesliga behind Bayern Munich and Dortmund. This is a newly promoted team. Yes, uh, still a, a big team, relatively speaking, in Germany. But the fact that they're competing with some of the best teams, and Bayern's way out in front in this, in both of those metrics, by the way. But the fact that they're in the top three in terms of their offensive output, that is, that is incredible. They've given up 35 goals, which is pretty much in the middle of the league this year. They press, High up the field at times are one of the more active pressing teams in the Bundesliga not the most but they play good soccer under Maserazzo and I think he absolutely deserves credit for the work he's doing with this team right now. I agree. And I think
2: the the thing there, Joe, that you talked about is like what they're doing, both from the attacking standpoint and from a defensive standpoint with the press and the shape. It's essentially what they did when they were in the Svai Bundesliga last season. And how often do we see, looking at the Premier League, a team that had a ton of success in the championship, who played a certain way, attacking free-flowing football, come up and they decide to do the same thing, looking in your direction, Fulham, and then they get blitzed. And it's crazy to see Stuttgart do the same things that they were doing, but do them very, very effectively. and you're right, Joe, that this is a club that, though they've been relegated and haven't had as much success recently, they're a big club who could be even bigger. I didn't realize, I looked at their, like, their their budget to see what their sort of transfer expenditures usually were, did not realize that in the last, like, four seasons they have sold Timo Werner, Benjamin Pavard, uh, Ozan Kabak, Antonio Rudiger, and Philip Kostic. Like, that's a solid team of players that they have gotten rid of because of financial issues and uh, some on-field issues as well. So, I guess the idea would be that Pellegrino Matarazzo, whose name is super fun to say, stays there long term, develops young players, brings them through, doesn't have to sell them, and then we have an American winning the Bundesliga, feels like it's a nailed uncertainty
3: I'm here for it there is one guy who I think could join that list of players that have been sold on a 22 year old Argentinian attacker Nicolas Gonzalez who leads the team in expected goals he's been a good player for them playing in a couple different attacking spots depending on their shape not a not a player that I was very familiar with before this but now I will be having that name in the back of my head whenever the back of my mind the back of my head doesn't really do me a whole lot of good but I'll have (laughs) that name in the back of my mind whenever I watch guard and whenever I watch Matarazzo for the rest of this year and hopefully beyond that for as long as Gonzalez is actually with this squad
2: you want to know how you keep in the back of your head Joe please tattoo get that Eunice Musa tattoo like (laughs) I got then he's there forever
3: yeah no definitely for sure for sure for sure I'll do that yep
2: (laughs) I mean then you'd have a, a random Argentine player and I'd have a random English player, it seems.
3: Yeah. Let's uh, man, okay, I wanna be clear, like Yunus <laughs> Musa is still very much up for grabs, you know? Like, yeah, he is. don't he don't, is. don't don't change that tattoo just yet, Taylor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I will I will not. I will not. I think I just I was sort of when I saw that news, I was like I the English pressure liars that's not true and I think I so like emotionally overreacted that I had to calm myself down a little bit and try to see different angles It'll but right, okay. okay, Joe he could still play for us and okay. I hope he does keep, keep, okay. telling
1: that, okay. keep telling yourselves that keep telling yourselves that thank you Andrew Landry for the question and thank you Tyler and Joe for the German <laughs> update there um,
2: you're welcome couple,
1: a <laughs> couple more Robert Cordova asks what random soccer player or soccer moment lives in your head rent free I would like to open the floor with a couple of suggestions Suggestions from myself. Uh, The Euro 96 penalty shootout, England against Germany. One of the sort of formative awakenings in my soccer journey, which, of course, Gareth Southgate missed the penalty in and uh, meant that, you know, it didn't come home that uh, summer and it hasn't since. Uh, From that era as well, the player who lived in my head rent-free the most was David Ginola, who was played at Tottenham and Newcastle. I'm thinking specifically Tottenham era. I always viewed him as the player who brought diving to the Premier League. It's not necessarily true. Jürgen Klinsmann was uh, with with Tottenham for, uh, at a relatively relatively similar period and he used to celebrate by doing a dive celebration cheekily, but David Ginola was the player who was unashamedly incredibly talented at the ball. He had this sort of touch that no one else in the league really had but would flop over at any moment. That that always used to get me and that was when people didn't really dive back then and I realised those two references I've made were probably when Joe here wasn't even born, which is a uh, um. um for me Um, (laughs) more recently I would say the 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 moment that lives rent-free in my head is I think it's injuries uh, bad injuries I see on the field the one that I always think of is Petacek's injury and John Terry's injury when it was Abu Dhabi who kicked him in the head in the League Cup final I'm gonna say 2007-ish somewhere around there but it was when John Terry was out cold I always find that terrifying and it happened to me when I was defending a corner a couple of years back, I didn't go unconscious or anything. I got a big black eye from it, but I was always terrified of like going for a header anywhere below head height <laughs> after that kind of thing. Um, one more for you. Schalke um, appointing Christian Gross. I still can't believe that happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Joe,
3: what about you? I just have a couple and they're both related to the exact same moment in time. Taylor, I'm guessing you might be able to guess what it is. Ryan, you might even be able to guess... Uh, October 2017, Christian Pulisic nope. crying after the U.S. lose nope. to Trinidad and Tobago, miss the World no, Cup. <laughs> just that that picture. It, it's honestly more the picture than it is the moment because watching that game, there were so many things happening, both kind of in my head and also on TV. That I guess I wasn't as hyper focused on that image of Christian Pulisic crying. But then, just I mean, you can look up Christian Pulisic crying, and it's going to come up all over the internet. That that image of him just sitting there. After having mm. sobbed. And so that one's big for me. And then to go right along with that, Roman Torres's goal to beat Costa Rica on that same night in 2017. It's 1-1 in the 88th minute. Roman Torres is high up the field playing as a striker because Panama need to win that game. They need that game winner to have any chance of qualifying for the World Cup. Panama play a long ball out of their own half. I think Luis Tejada is the player who gets ahead on it, flicks it forward to Torres, who runs onto it beautifully bodies a Costa Rican defender and scores with his first touch with his right foot. It's an awesome goal. It's an incredible goal. You almost get chills watching it for Panama, but then you kind of have to remember, I kind of have to remember like that was, it was very much a factor in why the U S were not able to qualify for that world cup. And there are so many other things that go along with that, but an incredible moment for Panama that almost gives you goosebumps. And then also just uh, a really unfortunate moment that lives in my head. Rent free. The thing, uh,
2: I have a Kuva one, uh, the U.S. failing to qualify for the World Cup one as well. The thing that always like puts me in the worst mood is like, you know, when like your cable goes out or something stops working and there's that a momentary frustration of like, but it's supposed to be working. And then there's that feeling of like, well, somebody has to be held accountable and I have (laughs) no idea who will be. And like, or like when Amazon marks your package is delivered and then you go to open the door and it's not there. And you're like, how do I deal with this? Somebody, oh no, they're going to think I'm lying. Like it's, it's that momentary panic of like, nothing's going to work. Things aren't going to change. And what stands out to me from that one is, The Sunil Gulati quote afterwards about you don't make wholesale changes just because the ball like was two inches wide or something. And it just felt like in that moment, like, oh, we're not going to learn anything from this and i think that was the part that really lived in my head and is what i think about uh, in relation to that loss just because in that moment i felt like oh we're just going to keep bruce arena nothing's going to change Sinugalati will be there and we're just going to keep doing the same stuff and here we are things are very different so that's maybe one that lives in there negatively but in a positive way joe do you know how to uh insert bleeps into the show since you're editing uh i don't but I i think i could learn then I'll just say Torsten Frings, and I won't <laughs> add the, uh, the middle name that I was going to insert for him. Uh, but Torsten Frings and his handball in the 2002 World Cup. Like, it's, it, it's probably really, and this is definitely me rationalizing, Ryan, before you say it. Like, to some extent, it's better for the United States to go out due to, like, an injustice, quote unquote, rather than getting blitzed in a semifinal or something like that. So, Maybe it was for the better to have a villain for forever, but Torsten Frings, I often think about what might have been. And then from players that terrified me, uh Didier Drogba when he was playing for Chelsea and just like felt like he could score at any given moment from any position on the field. Uh that was one that I was kind of always terrified anytime United were playing Chelsea. The biggest one, I love Nemanja Vidić. I uh, like he was one of my favorite players when he was playing. He remains one of my favorite Manchester United players. But seeing this... Consummate defender who was a wall of stability go to pieces every time he played Fernando Torres was not my favorite thing. Huh. And that was one that also like Fernando Torres specifically for Liverpool. I think he, I think Vidic gets like four red cards <laughs> in different Liverpool games. There's the game when they lose four to one and he just cannot handle Fernando Torres. And I remember just always having this fear of, of Fernando Torres as a result because of what he did to Damanya Vidic. So those are my, my four players or people who continue to exist inside my brain
1: oh i'm sorry to hear that i hope they start paying some rent at some point that's all i can say they can
2: afford it all of those people can afford it i'm sure (laughs) i'm gonna i don't know actually i don't know about torsten frinks i don't know how his situation is (laughs) i'll
1: pick you up on one thing did you say it's better to go out quietly in a tournament than to blaze out in like a big semi-final or something is that what you were saying
2: no i think it's like to go out due to injustice where it's like oh it's not that we had a terrible game and got destroyed by a team but to be like like uh to have this moment of like oh what could have been and it's somebody else's fault it's not uh, our own fault we went out basically it's being able to blame this other team for cheating is sort of like what allows you to maybe not think about oh we might have gotten destroyed in the next game or eh, maybe the tournament wasn't as good overall yeah. because of what happened in that last game so
1: rather than going out fair and square karen rockwell just wants to speak to the manager. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I do. I want to know
2: why Torsten Frink's hasn't been (laughs) held accountable. I'm fine with it.
1: (laughs) All righty, we got one more question on this list of questions episode. Thank you so much to everybody who has submitted, including Phil Doucette. Doucette. Who is
2: Germany's manager? I, I, I do want to speak to the manager now. I'm going to look this up. Go ahead, Ryan, read the question. <laughs>
1: Phil Doucette. I'm sorry if I've uh, butchered your surname there, Phil. Should Major League Soccer consider changing its schedule? Is there a way to estimate how much money MLS loses annually for not being synchronized with other Major League Soccer, sc- Major League schedules? Uh, would better timing of player availability aid in MLS's stated goal of becoming a Seller League. An interesting question, particularly that last part about being a Seller League. Joe, do you have thoughts?
3: I do on that last part. I want to address the, you know, should MLS change its schedule? That's a whole conversation for a whole another day. And in fact, that conversation has been had before. Weather makes it really difficult. The U.S. is a big country all of those factors make this really hard. Like, I don't, I don't really want to play soccer in Minnesota in February. Thank you. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody yep. does. I'm not even that's sure. That's literally what I wrote down. I'm not sure it's possible. <laughs> so, like, that's just a whole nother can of worms. But I, Ryan, I like yeah. how you highlighted that, that last question. Would better timing of, of player availability help MLS become more of a selling league? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. If Major League Soccer was ever able to find a way to align themselves with top leagues in Europe, that would be a big deal for their ability to sell players and move them on to the next level and become that selling league that Don Garber wants them to be. For context, Major league, so- Major league Soccer season runs from March or April this year to November or December. European leagues run from August or September kind of to May. So, those are the rough sketches here. So when European teams are trying to buy players before their season starts in kind of in the fall or in the summer, then Major League Soccer has just a couple months left in their season. Teams are pushing for the playoffs, teams are pushing for the Supporters Shield. They don't want to sell their players. LAFC doesn't want to sell Diego Rossi, one of the best young players in the league, to Fiorentina, to Serie A, to La Liga, I mean, to wherever. They don't want to sell him with two months left in their season. That's so inconvenient for them. If Major League Soccer was somehow able to align with Europe and sell their players in that big summer window at the same time, instead of having to rely on that January transfer window as kind of their main main way to get rid of players I think that would be a big boost for teams like LAFC who have the resources to go out there and and sign capable players to replace the players they sell on but just the timing of that makes it really challenging right now.
1: Hmm. Taylor thoughts?
2: Uh, I agree with Joe that I I think it's it's too much of a challenge in terms of obviously conflicts with other sports, as well as weather and the size of the United States factoring into things. Uh, I I think if you were going to make the argument for like why they should, I, I go along with everything Joe said. And I would emphasize that talking to Manuel yesterday about Bundesliga clubs, doing this thing of announcing player acquisitions and player departures and managerial departures six months before they're going to happen or four months before they're happening, and wondering, like, what effect does that have on morale? Is that good? I was asking, is that a German thing? And I think about it, and it's a Bundesliga thing for sure, but it's also an MLS thing where we constantly see players either... Signed by an MLS team, but not joining until the summer when their European campaign is over or players signed and they're going to move in January or December once the season is over a la Brendan Aronson. And I think there is an, a disruptive element to that. Sometimes it's good because it lets the player then kind of finish out the seasons, continue to get minutes, and then they leave on a positive note. But it does lead to some weird scheduling issues. And it really drives home the idea that the regular season isn't necessarily that important. Yeah. If you're like, oh yeah, we've got these two DP signings. They're gonna be here in July. Whoa, wait, 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 it's fine. <laughs> we're gonna play a while. Yeah. And we're gonna hit the ground running in July, yeah. three months into the season. And then we're definitely gonna make the playoffs if we're DC United. Like it can work, but it does sort of take away some of the importance of those games that are happening at the beginning of the year.
1: I think I definitely agree with that, and particularly with bringing in players uh, from from Europe and DP players. Um, I'm watching Charlotte FC trying to uh, – well, they're building a roster at the moment, and you see, you see how the different timings of different leagues affects the way they are going to build a roster. It's very interesting. What I would say in support of changing the schedule, gents, is, yeah, I also have written on my notes, winter in Minnesota, tricky to play <laughs> a game. But um, July in Miami, July in Orlando, yeah. arguably equally tricky, and we do that already.
3: Is it equally tricky though? Because, I mean, I, so I, I don't live in a humid climate, but I live in a hot climate. We're about two or three weeks away from, you know, 85, 90 degrees probably here in Arizona. But like, you can, no, that's (laughs) like, I, wow, I should be pitied, not, not, uh, envied right now, but. You've got a nice, I do think
1: dry heat there in Arizona. Isn't it perfect,
3: basically, Joe? It is air to dry heat, but it is possible to play in heat. It's possible to play in humidity as well. I'm not saying it's fun because it's not. But when the field is literally so deep in snow, so covered in (laughs) snow, you cannot play soccer. You can theoretically play soccer, and it's been done in 115 degree heat or in you know 90 degree heat and 90% humidity. That is possible. It's not fun, but it is possible, whereas some of the winter climates, I think, are more difficult. And it just makes this whole thing a mess, which it already is.
2: I I do always love when you have the the snow-covered field, and they do the snow removal for just, like, the 18-yard box and, (laughs) and, like, the midfield line. It's like, yeah, that should do it. That's the only lines you need to see. This is gonna be great. Yeah, Joe, I agree. And then there's the logistics aspect of it as well, that if you have blizzards in the, like, northern half of the United States, as we may well have, given current weather patterns, like, it, it does make travel harder, and then once you're there, getting to the actual facility can be harder. You've gotta have, you know, like, uh, Snow plows out in front of your buses uh, sometimes. So, yeah, I, I think once you're there, though, like, yeah, you can clear the field and play in the snow. I think I would rather play in the snow over like a 100 degrees plus Orlando humidity. Same. So, Ryan, I take your point there. But it's everything else around getting to that game that's going to be a little yeah, bit more difficult. And being a
1: fan in that minus something temperature, probably not yeah, there's the that. greatest experience. But, I mean, you know, they do at, like what the Chicago Bears fans get out there in their underwear in the cold, don't they? I don't know.
2: What level of confidence did you have that the Chicago football team was named the Bears?
1: I've been to that stadium to watch Bayern Munich play and I Uh know I've been to Chicago several times. I'm going to say 40%. uh, there was just that momentary like the chicago bears uh (laughs) also i'm very familiar with that i was almost gonna say cuffs because i knew it was an animal from the woods uh with bear-like features (laughs) i almost got there with that one well i think that just about wraps up the listener question show let's all pour some out for poor old joe and his uh, 85 degree beautiful arid weather he's about to experience uh in arizona uh with your crazy time zones what time is it there is it next wednesday or something joe
3: Oh, yeah. No, I'm actually I'm actually two full weeks ahead of
1: you guys right now. You guys
3: you guys can envy me now, but man, a month from now, I will come back yeah. and complain till the cows come home to bring back another you know, farm reference that we kind of started with on today's show. <laughs> Are you allowed to have cows in Arizona? Oh yeah, no, we can we can have. Right. Can you not? Like what?
2: I mean, I don't. I just I know that like come July, it's going to be one hundred and thirty degrees and dust storms everywhere. I don't know how that works. Yeah, no, no, they'll be fine. I'm sure they'll be fine. All right, fine. Uh, then Ryan, before we go, my final closing line would be that Rudy Voller, who managed Germany in two thousand two, uh, <laughs> I agree with Frank Lampard or Frank Reichard about you. <laughs> And that's, we've become that's a topical reference. we've come
1: within spitting distance at the end of <laughs> this show. Is. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> Taylor, thank you so much for your contributions to this show and to all of your shows and to life in general. Ryan, thank you for that and for that closing line. That was terrific. Joe, you were equally wonderful in my eyes. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Bye! <laughs>